0: Father, we open the Bible, we open the Word, we open the app that has the Word of your Bible on it, we open our hearts and ask, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with your will, that when we open our mouths, you would fill our mouths with your Word, the bread of your Word, the life of your Word, the life of your Son, the testimony of whom we desire to be, the subject of our life. And Lord, for any among us today who may be uncertain about whether you're really there or whether you're really listening or whether you really care or who may be struggling in a place of great need or great confusion or great anger or great sorrow, whatever the circumstance may be, we pray, Lord, that you would reach that one as well, all those, as well as those that rejoice in you today. And bind us together as one in You, to fulfill Your will and purpose in and through us. In Jesus' name. They called him the man with the golden tongue. Don't you feel like there should be like some early '60s electric guitar riff right there? The man with the golden gun. No, the man with the golden tongue. He's not a Bond villain. He's not a superhero, but he was to many, and I think rightly so, a hero of the faith. He's known as John Chrysostom. Actually, I'm taking a bit of liberty with golden tongue, although it's not that far afield of what Chrysostom actually means in the Greek, which is golden mouthed. But you've heard of somebody talk about somebody with a golden tongue or a silver tongue. Somebody who just seems to say things so eloquently, who always has the right words right at the ready, and they just roll off of their tongue so smoothly and beautifully. Maybe someone who's got a mellifluous voice that you just love to hear. I know my voice isn't like that. You know whose voice I wanted to have? It's not righteous to covet. But in the kingdom, I wanted to have John Ogilvie's voice. Excuse me, Lloyd Ogilvie's voice. Maybe I wanted John Chrysostom's uh, golden tongue. Mine seems to be tongue-tied. Lloyd Ogilvie, the pastor who was chaplain of the Senate for many years, also pastored here in Los Angeles, had a wonderful media ministry. I had the opportunity to meet him and actually work with him on a few occasions. He's with the Lord now. Absolutely wonderful man and had the most beautiful voice. Anybody who heard him? Yeah, just a fabulous voice Lloyd Ogilvie had. You'd be so grateful if I had it too, but we, we take what we get. Well, John Chrysostom was someone who was known as having this extraordinary ability to preach and to teach with wisdom and with colorful, beautiful, evocative language. He lived a long time ago from our perspective in the uh, latter part of the fourth and early part of the fifth centuries A.D. So several hundred years after the time of Jesus Christ and he was an elder a leader in the early church of that era. He was actually Archbishop of Constantinople, which was known as the New Rome or the Rome of the East, uh, Byzantium. It is, in fact, uh, today Istanbul in modern-day Turkey. At that time, it was the center of the Eastern Empire. And he was in charge of a number of major uh, uh, urban cities there in that region. As I mentioned, he, he was... Um, Titled with this term, Chrysostom, it's not actually his last name. It is a nickname that was given to him, Golden Mouth, because of his ability to preach the word of God so beautifully. We know that he was exiled late in his life. There was some kind of theological dispute going on at the time, and in fact the members of the churches that he was overseeing and other leaders in society apparently opposed him. We don't know exactly what the theological issue was, although... Uh, our, Our knowledge of what John taught and preached is actually very much in alignment with the kinds of things that we find in the book of James. John was very passionate about caring for the poor. He was very ready to critique the wealthy and rich and powerful of society when he felt that they were acting unjustly to the poor. Sound familiar? If we've been reading the book of James, and we have have we've been studying it together over the last few weeks we're we're really crossing the threshold of the middle of it today you know that that's a passion that James the author of that epistle in the New Testament had and so did uh, John Chrysostom many of the things that John preached and teach we would affirm so it seems unlikely that he was far afield of right doctrine but we don't know all we know is there was some kind of dispute and it created increasing hardship for him eventually he was exiled now in the Eastern Church particularly, he's been revered and stories spring up about people. There's a legend, I'm told that it's a Russian in origin, even though obviously John Chrysostom was not in Russia, but the legend goes that his death came uh, by wicked authorities who condemned him to be executed by being dragged along the road. Now this is an apocryphal legend, it's likely not accurate, it doesn't jibe with the the limited historical record that we have, but it does seem consistent with his legacy. His legacy was that at the end of his life, he faced persecution for his faith, he was exiled, he did die in exile, and he seemed to uh, be facing disfavor from the authorities, but he was enormously popular with the public because of his commitment to the Lord and to his faith. In the Russian legend, it is said that as he's being dragged along the street and people have been brought out to observe it so that he would be shamed, The poor there were instead in awe of his faithfulness because as he's being dragged to death, he's crying out, thanks, thanks for everything. Praise, praise for it all. Now, there are many martyrs who have stories like that. In fact, in the book of Acts, you can see a martyr who we know did die the way that is described in the biblical record. It's accurate. The first martyr of the church, as it were, after Jesus himself That is the first witness who gave his life to stand for the testimony of Jesus, literally in a court, the court of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court of the time. And as they stoned Stephen to death, he, looking up into heaven and seeing the Lord, asked that the Lord would not charge this offense against his executors. In fact, many of those who died for their faith in the early centuries of the Christian church made their greatest witness, that's what martyr actually means, it means witness, their greatest testimony for the truth of the Lord, for the love of the Lord, with how they used their tongue when they were in the midst of torment. When they were being tortured and tormented, they counted it all joy because of the love of the Lord within them. We do know that however John died, whenever he died, actually, he died saying reportedly, glory be to God for all things. He died with doxology on his lips, on his tongue. Doctrinal disputes surrounding him, but doxology, praise of the Lord in his heart and in his mouth, because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the sentiment of glory to be to God for all things is the sentiment of James 1, 2. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters. I start talking about the man with the golden tongue today because I think that it's important to remember that when we are talking about taming the tongue, we are talking about a transformation that comes from the Spirit and the Word, the Word that is breathed by the Spirit, not an effort to try and bridle our tongue according to human strength. What do I mean by that? It'll become clearer as we go forward in the message, but primarily what I'm saying is it's one thing to try and control what you say. It's another thing to have your heart transformed. Imagine, if you will, a well, and the water of the well, which once ran sweet and pure, starts coming out brackish and dark. And somewhere, the thought is, in the pipeline, something has gone bad. Yeah, I grew up in a place where we had a well at the bottom of the hill, and it had to be pumped up two acres to get to our house. Because out in the country, there was no municipal waterworks. So you had to just drill down into the ground and get that water up and drink it. Now, it was wonderful water. Whenever I would go into town and drink the water in town, I would think, ugh, how can these people drink this water? It's terrible. But that well water is sweet. But I also knew... That you have all kinds of gophers and rodents and stuff out there in the hills that are running around. And if they get into one of those lines and die or something like that, that's bad news. Yeah, I know. It's a gross thought. Sorry. (laughs) But there's a parallel to consider here. Sometimes, well, think of it this way. The word of the Lord says, the power of life and death is in the tongue. So you can have life in your mouth and it's sweet or you can have a dead rat in your mouth, and it's not sweet. You say, well, I would never have that in my mouth, but we have things worse than that in our mouths. And not just profanity and cursing. That's bad enough, but that's a childish level of, of badness. It's bad, but it's not as bad as hate. Now, hate and profanity and cursing combined, well, that's all the worse. But what I want the, 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 the lesson to be for us is that when we have something in our mouth that is not of the Lord, then it doesn't belong in our mouth. But the problem isn't just in the mouth. So this well, if you get something in the pipeline and it's got to be cleared out, you could replace the faucet. You can replace the pipe. But what if the problem is in the well? You say, well, I can't get down deep enough in there. Your heart is the well. The heart is is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, according to the prophet Jeremiah. Who can know it? Who can excavate it? The Lord. Now, when the Lord has shined his light into your heart and removed all the the rodency in our heart, if you will, all the death and decay, as that is taken out of us, the mouth will change. The lips will change, the words will change. But Jesus makes it clear, it's not just the words that we say, but the thoughts that we think that we are responsible for. Now, pause for a moment and consider that. You are not just responsible for your words, according to the Lord. You are responsible for your thoughts. You haven't really caught this. You know why? What is the percentage of your thoughts that you are aware of? How many of your thoughts do you even pay attention to? The percentage varies, but I would be willing to wager, if I did such things, that there's probably not a person within the sound of my voice or these words who could rightly claim it's 100%. And I'm not just talking about some Freudian notion of subconscious, unconscious. I mean that there are thoughts that we let fly through our mind all the time that we aren't being conscientious about. And the Lord is. What is the percentage of your thoughts that is known by the Lord? 100%. And what the Lord says is, they are your thoughts. You are responsible for them. When you come before me, says the Lord, all those thoughts come undone. The bundle of all the words said and all the thoughts thought and all the feelings felt, the book is opened. Did I say all those things? Did I see, think all those things? I did. And now the Lord is looking at them with me, hearing them with me. No wonder Isaiah said in chapter six, as Sister Celeste remind us in worship today, oh God, I am undone in your presence. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And it's true of all of us. But in his presence, the Lord brings that refining fire, the burning ember of coal that was touched to the lip of Isaiah from the altar space of God to alter his lips, to purify him, so that when the Lord said, I need to send someone out as my martyr, my witness, my testifier, my prophet, Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Not because I'm the man with the golden tongue, but because I'm the man who serves the golden God. Not the horrible gods of idols, of earthly gold, but the, the celestial heavenly Lord of life whose beauty and power and worth are beyond calculation and the totality of which is given to us in his presence to purify us, to tame the tongue, and then to use the tongue and the heart and the mind and the whole person to testify to the Lord. You can be the man with the golden tongue. You can be the woman with the golden tongue. You can be someone who in the worst moments of life, in the face of the worst treatment can give voice to the best blessings of God and consider it all joy. I think you could practically end the sermon there, but you're not so lucky. I'm going to keep going. James chapter 3. Actually, James chapter 3 puts a primary focus on taming the tongue, but this is a focus that we will see all throughout James and in many ways, as I've already been describing, all throughout the Bible. For those of you who might be dipping into this series now, Just to begin with, let me briefly and quickly review with you some essential facts about what this New Testament book of James is. It's a letter. An epistle is the term for the literary form at the time. It's meant as a sermon or a collection of sermons and sayings that were um, composed or, or recognized as being of this early church leader named James. And what we see in his book, in his letter, is a lot of the style, the pattern, the values of Old Testament wisdom literature, like the Proverbs and the Psalms and so forth. He's very focused on practical questions of daily living. And he is particularly admonishing of the church that they should demonstrate unity with one another, fairness toward each other and the world around them, temperance, that is self-control, taming not only the tongue, but the attitude and behavior, exhibiting patience, and perseverance. Now, there are many people named James in that era, just as there are today, but Christian tradition has historically attributed very clearly this letter to the brother of Jesus. We know that Jesus had brothers. We know that one of them was named James. There's a couple of references there in Matthew 13, Mark 6, where you can see that. His brothers, including James, were not followers of his, they were not disciples during Jesus' earthly life. But apparently, After Jesus' resurrection, they became believers and actually very involved in the church. There's a letter by a person named Jude who describes himself as the brother of James. Jesus also had a brother named Jude. We believe that both the New Testament books of James and Jude are authored by brothers of Jesus, biological brothers of Jesus. Now, at that time... It was sometimes common to refer to close cousins as brothers, too, so that could possibly be the relationship. But there's no reason to believe that they weren't literally fraternal in their relationship. What is interesting is that neither Jude nor James describes themselves as the brother of Jesus. And you might wonder why that would be. After all, what better claim do you have to write to the church than to say, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus, except that Jesus never taught that the members of his biological family were particularly privileged. In fact, when people came to him when he was teaching and said, oh, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that suckled you. Blessed are your brothers and sisters. And And he said, more blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's a sentiment that James described. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but a doer. Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? They are those who do what I am teaching you to do, who love the Lord and follow him. And so his brothers took that to heart. They didn't lay claim to their authority on the basis of being biological brothers of Jesus. In fact, what James describes himself as is doulos, servant, slave of Jesus, just the way Paul did in Romans chapter 1. James also begins by saying, that's who I am. I'm a servant of the Christ. He was also an apostolic leader in the early church. And uh, Hegesippus is a historian who records that actually James was in charge of the Jerusalem church. So we have some idea of when he wrote in the middle of the first century A.D., sometime probably immediately prior to what's called the Jerusalem Council. It's described in Acts 15, a gathering of leaders that included James and Peter and Paul and and, uh, Barnabas and so forth, that made it official policy of the church that not only Jewish people but also non-Jewish people, Gentiles, all could be part of the church. That was the upshot of the Jerusalem Council. We know from the record of the Jewish Roman historian and military official Josephus that James was put to death himself by execution, by stoning in fact, just like Stephen, for his faith in 62 AD. So that means that this book was most likely written sometime between 45 to 65 AD. And do you know what that means? That it is one of the earliest books of the New Testament. In fact, it's conceivable that it may be the very first. Now, I think it's possible also that uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians could have been written earlier. You might wonder, well, what about the Gospels? Those were probably not formally composed yet at that early time of the 40s. We can't be certain. But in any case, this is an early writing of the New Testament era. And it really reveals to us the passionate priorities of the leaders of the church at that time. We also know something about the populace. Of the church at that time, the people, the, the rank and file, if you will, although I don't know that that's the, the, pro, the proper way to think of the citizens of heaven, as it were, which are the members of the body of Christ. But in uh, Jerusalem at that time, uh, there was a very uh, strong consciousness about and care for the Jewish diaspora, that is, Jewish people who had gone out all over the ancient world. You know how this is because. Many of you in this historically Filipino church are Filipinos, and you know that Filipinos have a diaspora. There is a Filipino diaspora, praise the Lord. And you love your countrymen and women, and you feel the sense of that community around the globe, right? You can go to United Arab Emirates. You can go to China. You can go anywhere in the world, South America, Canada, here in the U.S., and find Filipino enclaves, Filipino people, Filipino culture, Filipino food, Same the tongue, but the stomach also. (laughs) And so there was a heart for the people of the Jewish nation and community around the world. And when James is writing his letter, he's writing to those, because at that time, most everybody in the church is of that community. But he's also probably thinking of those that are coming into the church, even Gentiles, as coming into the embrace of that diaspora, as it will if you will. So in Jerusalem, the church was primarily Jewish people, ethnically and and according to their faith background, and mostly poor, working class, labor class, working poor of society. Many of them were new. Remember, the church grew by 3,000 members in one day on the day of Pentecost. You know, the Lord's done it before. Can you imagine if from one Sunday to the next, we we're not able to fill this room because we had 10 times its, its capacity. That's what happened to the church in Jerusalem in one day, 3,000. So you have a lot of new believers who are theologically and spiritually immature. It's not a dig. It's just saying a lot of people who come to the Lord, they love the Lord, but now how do I live? How do I, how do I follow this word? And what should I know from it? James is writing with that in mind. Also, many of them are oppressed in their social status. They have employers, some of them are slaves to masters. Uh, There are other wealthy individuals who are frequently persecuting them, especially as they come to the Lord, because the ruling class, the upper class at that time, is very dubious about this whole messianic Judaism thing, this whole Christ thing. And so they're facing a lot of persecution. And that's the perspective that James is writing to. I wanna review the first chapter, We saw that he says, in the midst of that kind of circumstance, live single mindedly for the Lord and put to death this double mindedness. And double mindedness is getting pulled away with the interests of the world or being envious of the rich and wealthy and not being complaining about trials and suffering, but instead facing them with patient, mature faith. Last week, Pastor Henge preached to us out of chapter two, and we saw the continuation of this theme don't give in to worldliness. Don't be uh, prone to greed and fleshly appetites or exhibiting fleshly favoritism to those who are rich and wealthy and powerful. Instead, the counterpoint to that, the antidote, the solution to that is to look to the royal law of love of the Lord that that is all throughout the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And don't just say that you do that But show that you do that through your works, which are manifestations of faith, because faith without works is dead and useless. Now, as we come to the latter half of this sermon series, as we come to the latter half of February and the weeks ahead, I want to be able to more succinctly summarize where we've been. So I can take a little bit less time uh, reminding us, but I do like to remind us, because it's helpful for us to have the through line. Another thing to remember is you can read the entire book of James today. Maybe read it every week while we're in this series. Or if you want to, take the chapter that we are in and read through it that week and really delve into what is described there. So you can get the most out of what the Spirit wants to say to the church in this season. Amen? Okay. So single-minded faith and patient faith Are the themes of chapter one and chapter two showing justice and love with equanimity to all, regardless of their social standing, and also putting your faith to work, applying your faith in ways that demonstrate God's righteousness? Today, tame your tongue with patience and steer your speech into blessing. What beast is the hardest to bridle? What fire? Burns brightest and hottest, the wildfire. There was a movie that came out, I can't believe it's over 30 years ago now, a Ron Howard film called Backdraft. It was about firefighters. It's a pretty compelling movie if you watch it. And they talk about fire like a beast, it's an animal. I'm sure there's a bit of dramatic license taken there, but I also have known firefighters who say it's really true. It's almost as though fire has a mind and a will of its own. But the thing that is most scary about fire, and you've probably felt this, if you've ever had a fire, get out of your control. Ever lit a campfire and all of a sudden it went where you didn't intend? Or you had a fire in the kitchen that went from the, you know, the grill to, to the surroundings? I remember one time our toaster oven caught on fire. Boy, that thing, I had a, we had a candle that practically burned the living room down. Fire can just turn like that. How about the tongue? The tongue is compared to a little ember that can spark a forest fire. It's compared to a beast that needs to be bridled. Our own tongues prove the toughest creatures to tame. And James chapter 3 reminds us that it's necessary for us to do so because the real wisdom of the Lord is not going to take root in us and in our lives and his righteousness is not going to flow through us in that sweet way if there's something dead and bitter in our heart and in our mouths. So, we can't fail to take proper control of our own tongues. But the way that that is going to be accomplished is through the transformative grace of God at work in us. His patience and love Enabling us to tame the tongue. I want to look at the chapter in three sections. First, trippingly on the tongue. The tongue's small, but it's very significant. Blazing like a beast. It's an ember that can bless or curse. I can have a fire in my living room that warms the whole house. It's romantic. It's wonderful. It casts light. We had a, we had a power outage uh, a week or two ago. The fireplace lit the living room. Move it two feet. And it's disaster. Because a fire in the fireplace is blessing. A fire in the oven or on the range is cooking. But a fire in the living room is killing. Your tongue can do the same thing it can spark the fires of love. It can speak the glories of God. Or it can burn the house down, wreck your marriage, scorch your children. It can be like napalm in your workplace. Probably all of us have worked with somebody who used their tongue to curse. Maybe it was curse words, but maybe it was also curse thoughts and curse feelings. That doesn't reflect the gentleness of wisdom that comes with a tamed tongue that no longer is like the serpent looking for selfishness, but instead the sweet dove of wise and gracious peace. trippingly on the tongue. <laughs> as an erstwhile Shakespearean actor, I couldn't help but think of Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 2. Speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. But if you voice it, as some of your actors do, then I had as lief that the town crier spoke my words. In other words, Hamlet here, speaking to actors, is saying, when you act, do it naturally, trippingly on the tongue. Well, I'm an actor couldn't help but go for that. But I, it makes me think always trippingly on the tongue of how our tongues trip us up. It's a little thing. Have you ever tripped over a cord or a little, uh, little crimp in the carpet? Just so small you didn't see it, but you can go flat on your face because of it. And the tongue is that way. It's so easy to trip over our tongue. And I don't just mean a slip of the tongue. I mean that our tongue gets us into trouble in relationships and even with the Lord. In fact, James says not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. I always think of that with great reverence and no small amount of righteous fear when I enter into the pulpit. Because what James is saying is not teachers are better than you or you're not good enough to be teachers or I don't want more teachers. But be careful because it's easy to look at a position like this and think I'd like to be the one telling everybody how it is. But James is saying, if that's your attitude, you're probably not prepared to teach. And if you tamed your tongue, you're definitely not prepared. People like the idea of being part of the worship team. But do you realize that the worship team doesn't just come up here and worship for, for half an hour once a week? They are called to be people who are worshiping in their lives. So that the small window of time that we have together here is just a window into the wealth of the world within them that the Spirit is at work in. Now people on the worship team are going, "Ooh, (laughs) do I meet that standard? No, you don't. And neither do I. But the question is not do you meet the standard, but do you desire it? Are you living toward it? You'll never meet it. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who enables you to meet that standard. But if you don't even have the standard and have no appetite for it, then you shouldn't become a teacher. You shouldn't be a worship leader because the Lord is going to open the books and say, you said on Sunday, Lord, Lord, Lord. But on Monday, you said, (laughs) and guess what? This one was for show, but this one showed who you are. And it's who you are that I'm all about says the Lord. We all stumble in many ways, says James, says Courtney, says you. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Do I meet that standard? No, and neither do you. But the point is not whether you meet it or not. The point is, do you desire it? Are you living toward it? The Lord will meet that standard in you. So be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He never, ever says anything that he does not mean and that he does not do, ever. God has never once said one bad word. He has never said one wrong word. Whatever he speaks is true, righteous, and right. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. James is saying, it may seem like a big task, but it's a small thing when you center in on where the problem really is. Or take a ship as an example. Huge ship steered by a little tiny rudder. One rudder can pilot the whole thing. The tongue is small in the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great fire can be sparked by it. Taming the tongue is one of James' main themes throughout the whole letter. Notice that this central part, now the chapters were added later, but the center of James' letter, the core, the heart of it, Is focused on this issue of taming the tongue. But he actually touches on the idea of steering our speech away from evil and into blessing in every single chapter of his book. Only five chapters. In other words, throughout the letter, he's constantly coming back to it. In James chapter 1, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because your anger is not righteous. God's anger is fire in the fireplace, fire on the altar. Man and woman's anger is fire in the living room. It's fire in the dry, dead forest. If you consider yourself a person of great faith, but you're not able to keep a tight ring on your tongue, you are deceiving yourself, and your religion is worthless. James chapter 2, speak and act as those who are going to be judged. Speak, remembering that the words that you say are written in the book of the Lord. Not in the Bible, but in the book of God's record. Although if you're saying what's in the Bible, then you know that what's in God's book of record with you is the same as his word. So speak the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another, James will say in chapter 4. We'll see it next week. Anyone who speaks against one of their brothers or sisters and judge them is speaking against the law. He's not saying that you don't make righteous evaluations about behavior. He's saying don't slander and speak ill and speak in a way that is cruel and without love towards one another. Don't grumble against one another in chapter 5 or you will be judged. And don't swear He also says in in chapter four, by the way, don't say I'm going to do this X, Y, Z tomorrow without recognizing that unless the Lord allows it, you ain't doing it. So whatever you say, say it mindful that the Lord is listening. And whatever you do, do it mindful that the Lord is listening. Don't say, I swear to God, I'm going to do this if you're not going to do it. In fact, don't make those swears because you can't make those promises. But what you can say is yes to the Lord or no to the Lord. Or yes to people, or no to people. So the Lord says, Let your yes be yes and your no be no. (laughs) Say what you mean and mean what you say. Speak the truth and speak it in love. So the tongue is relatively small and it's not just the tongue because it's not just words. (sighs) It's from the tongue also. Huh, mm hmm, is from the tongue also. Sometimes not speaking. You ever anybody do the silent treatment thing? That's the tongue at work also. Oh, I'm not saying a thing. Oh, yeah? God hears exactly what you're saying. He knows exactly what you're saying. We think we're going to go to God and say, I didn't say anything to her. I didn't say a thing to him. Yeah, I heard you anyway, says the Lord. Its power can be harnessed to help instead of to harm. It's like fire. The greatest gift of the gods, right? According to Greek mythology, Prometheus brought down fire from heaven so that human beings could do all the great things with fire that can be done. To cook and to heal and to warm and to preserve and to protect and to refine and to beautify and to to make. The tongue can be a powerful asset or it can be a devastating detriment. Learn to steer your speech And God will readily give you the wisdom if you lack it. God will give you the patience because we lack it. God will give you the grace to hold your tongue, to steer your tongue. It can bless or it can curse. It's very rarely neutral. Maybe when we're asleep. (laughs) The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It can corrupt the whole body. It can set the whole course of one's life on fire. It itself can be set on fire with the fires of hell. That's fleshliness, that's worldliness, that's greed, that's cruelty, that's profanity. We can tame all kinds of creatures, but no human being can tame the tongue. The Lord is required to bridle our tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings. That's Sunday, that's Monday, right? People who are made in God's image and we can speak against them as though they are less than dirt. Out of the same mouth can come blessing and cursing. Brothers and sisters, Mangakapate, James says to us, it shouldn't be so. It must not be like that. Amen. Can both fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? What spring is that, right? Is a fig tree going to bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Once again here, James is appealing both to the Old Testament as we know it, the Hebrew Bible, and also to the teachings of Jesus, especially the moral teachings that are found in the very similar Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 and the Sermon on the Plain as it's called that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 6. When James is talking about a spring and it being bitter, it's very likely that he intends to imply a reference to the book of Exodus, and it's also referenced in the Old Testament book of Numbers. When the Israelites had just been brought out of the Exodus, they had been brought out of slavery in Egypt, and they are brought to a place called Mara, Three days in the wilderness without any water. Now God has just split the Red Sea and devastated the greatest superpower on the face of the known world to them. And delivered them out of 400 years of abject slavery, what can this God not do? He has demonstrated his wonders in that land, up to and including the Passover. Three days without water, and what are they doing with their tongues? Where is the water? We're going to die. Why would you bring us here? And before we critique them, wouldn't we be the same? So they grumbled against Moses, and when they grumbled against Moses, the leader that God had given them, they were grumbling against God. And God knew it. Sure, they could say, well, our beef isn't with you, it's with this guy Moses, but God knows what's in the heart. And God knows, I gave you Moses. Now, none of us is perfect, but Moses was faithfully leading. They were complaining against Moses and God. And so when they came to a spring after three days, and they finally found water, it was salty, it was briny, it was brackish, it was bitter the Hebrew word mara means bitter. They named the place bitter. They named the place bitter. Well, that's what we found. Maybe that's what they found because that's what they were. In any case, remember what God had entrusted to humanity right from the beginning? Name the things, call each thing for what it is. And when you name something bitter, it becomes forever known as bitter. So when you say, well, that's the way I was raised. You know, my dad was a real something, something. My mom treated me like a real blah, blah, blah. It may be the fact, but when you're naming them for that and you're naming your history, you are ensconcing it in that truth. You are digging that hole deeper and putting down a sign and saying, this forever is called that. I am forever abused. Maybe you were, but you're naming it that way. Does that mean that you can solve it by hiding it or calling it something else? Paint it over and call it pretty? No, but it does mean that the power of life and death is in your tongue. So if you say, I'm depressed. If you call yourself something, you become the thing that you call yourself. This is how I identify All right, but recognize the power of how you're identifying yourself becomes a power of defining yourself. And that can be used in a good way or it can be used in a way that curses. The question is, what does God say? How does God identify you? With what does God identify you? If you were abused, if you were harmed, if you are depressed, what does God have to say about that? It's not necessarily a simple solution, but there is power in the word of the Lord. In fact, the Lord said to Moses, put that wood of that tree into that spring and the bitter water became sweet. It's generally seen as a symbol of the cross. What was a source of bitterness has been switched to a source of sweetness. And what God said was, trust me. Follow what I'm saying. Don't be stiff-necked and angry and abusive. Speak blessing. Trust me to bless, and you'll be blessed. The next place he led them to was called Elam Palms. It was an oasis. So James is saying, be careful what you say, because what you say becomes definitive of who you are. But James is also thinking of Jesus You can hear it in the the comparison between the passage in James 3 and what Jesus says in Luke 6 and elsewhere in Matthew and so forth. No tree bears, good tree bears bad fruit. And a bad tree isn't going to bear good fruit. A tree will bear the fruit that reflects what's within it. A mouth will speak that reflects what's in the heart. A good person brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart. No person is good without God. So he's not saying some people are good and some people are bad, but rather some people belong to God and God puts the treasure of who he is in their heart, the presence of the Lord in you, and that comes out of you. But if bad stuff is coming out of you, it shows that the presence of the Lord is lacking within you and there is evil stored up there. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The tongue can bless or curse. So we are being called to determine to speak blessing. When you face persecution, trials, and tests, bless God. Not in an artificial way, because if it's not welling up out of your heart, then it it is not authentic in your mouth. But in a way that says, Lord, I trust you. I love you, that you are good, even when I'm facing something that is bad. Lord, help me. And that says to others, thanks, thanks for it all. Praise, praise for it all. Like Joseph who said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. Amen. And when we live that way, we will be blessed. Amen. No matter what our circumstances are, because the blessing will be within us. And no one can touch that. But we can show it. James says, is there anyone that's wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by living a good life. And a good life is going to be one in which the actions of that life, the words that are spoken and the deeds that are done, reflect the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are harboring bitter envy, selfish ambition, then don't <laughs> boast about it. Don't deny the truth. That's not wisdom that comes from heaven. That's earthly, that's fleshly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, you're going to find their disorder and every evil practice. Where there's something dead in the well, it's going to show up in the water that flows. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, righteous work, impartiality and sincerity. Friends, that is the definition of patience. It's peace-loving. It's considerate. It's submissive to proper authority. It's full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. You know why? It's the definition of love. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It desires the best. It wants to bless. And so there is another theme running through the letter, not only of James, but the whole word of the Lord, which is this contrast between the words and works of anger and evil, and the word of God which is righteous, merciful, and just. There's cursing and there's blessing. There's death and there's life. Again, you see it all through James, James one. God chose to give us birth, how? Through the word of truth. The God who created everything with a word. Genesis one, right? Let there be light, let there be life, set it over you and me, the word of truth to us. So accept that word Planted in you because that's the word that saves you. That is the living Logos Christ. Aren't the wicked wealthy ones the ones who are blaspheming that word and blaspheming that name? They're cursing what God has said over you as blessing. And when you fight and quarrel with each other, you're fighting and quarreling with your cursing words and your your contrary hearts. And you're reflecting the unrighteousness of the world instead of the indwelling living word of God. James 5, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering. Look at the prophets, like Isaiah, who spoke in the name of the Lord. They spoke blessing by speaking the word. And so what, how do we do that? Pray. Praise. Pray for others. Pray in a way that's effective. Pray for the sick. They'll be made well. Confess sin. These are ways in which you can speak blessing that brings blessing of healing, of resolution in society. In a couple of weeks, when we look at James 5, we're going to see that an entire nation can receive salvation, can receive rain in a time of drought when a man or woman of God prays the word of the Lord. The Lord said to his people in Deuteronomy 11, I put before you blessing and cursing. And he's saying that to you and I today. Here is blessing, here is cursing. The blessing is if you obey the word of God. The curse is if you reject it and follow other ways and other gods. You want to have blessing in your life? The Lord wants you to have it. But if you choose cursing, you choose cursing. I call the heavens and the earth as a witness, says the Lord through the mouth of Moses. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, Deuteronomy 30. Choose life. So that you and your children may live and love the Lord and listen to his voice and hold fast to him. See, you're not going to be able to fulfill it. God will fulfill it, but God can't choose it for you because then it wouldn't be your choice. He's giving you and I the freedom to choose and the promise to fulfill. He who began a good work through his word, he will see it to completion, but only if you choose to follow. He is the one who will work and will within you to do the work of his will. But first, you have to be willing to choose his will and his word. The Lord is life. Choose life. And here I bring to mind again what I mentioned earlier, I'll just touch on it briefly, that Jesus makes it quite clear. It's not just what you say. It's not just religious practice. It's what you think and feel. Jesus said, if anyone's angry with a fellow disciple, They're going to be subject to judgment. Jesus is responding to, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm telling you, love your neighbor and love your enemy. And if you even have hatred in your heart, just as he says later about lust, lust in your heart is equivalent to adultery. Hatred in your heart is equivalent to murder in the words of Jesus. So if you are speaking out hatred in your heart, even when it's just Raka, which is an idiom in the, in the Aramaic of Jesus' day, a way of saying, you moron, goggle, goggle. Jesus said, I heard that. You said that about me. Because that person is made in my image. You go, well, they're not using it very well. Neither are you in this moment. I'm not holding you accountable for them. I'll deal with them. You're accountable to me for you. You say raka, you say goggle, you say idiot, and you're answerable to the court of the king. He's not talking about a human court. And if you say you fool, it's intensified in the original language. In other words, you really put the pedal to the metal and start berating someone, you are in danger of igniting your tongue with the fire of hell. You're taking that fire and you're putting it in your living room. You're putting it in your lap Don't think you can do that and not get burned. You say, well, I wanna burn, I wanna burn that one. I wanna burn them so bad, I'll burn my house down. Only a fool does that. Watch out. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles people, Jesus said, it's what comes out. But it's what comes out from the heart because the heart speaks what the mouth is full of. Jesus says, I tell you, Matthew 12, Everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. I don't need to ask for a show of hands. Every person, including yours truly, has said an encyclopedia of wrong words. You have hurt others more than you probably have ever realized with your own tongue, your own children, your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your teachers, your bosses, your employees, your friends. Every single one of us has said words that really fly in the face of God. If you say something like, I wish I'd never been born, you're cursing God. If you say, I'm no good, you are calling yourself something that God doesn't say about you. So you're calling God a liar. We have all said many wrong words. But blessing is more powerful than cursing. Life is more powerful than death. All die. But there is one who died, even though he didn't have to. He is the author of life. And he died and rose again because of the power of life within him. The purity of his trust in the word of God. One right word covers a multitude of sins. So let this word dwell in you richly. Let it take such deep root in you that it bears fruit in you and wells up out of you so that when you speak, it's the words of the Lord. Then when you come before the Lord, he will say, there were many wrong words, but they were erased by the blood of Christ. And all the right words that you spoke were actually the words that I put in your mouth to speak. And so welcome into life because life is already in you. The teachings of Jesus in the New Testament go beyond just charging us with avoiding thinking ill of others or speaking ill against them. We are called to bless our enemies and show love to them in a positive way that no human being is going to be able to satisfy except that the Spirit of God would be at work within you. Jesus says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who persecute you. And Paul said it again in Romans, bless and do not curse. The curse is selfishness, fleshliness, worldliness, and those things bring bitterness and cursing and death. But the wisdom of God and faithful obedience to his word brings about abundant blessing. How do we counteract the cursing in our life? How do we embrace blessing? Well, James says, tame the tongue. But when you come to the tongue, it's a wild animal. You might say, oh yeah, put the bit and the bridle in the horse's mouth. But have you ever tried to do it? If you're a horse wrangler, you know what you're doing. But it takes a bit of training. God, God is the human whisperer. God knows how to come and whisper into your ear. God knows how to come and speak into your heart in the way that counteracts cursing and embraces blessing, that covers sins and tames the tongue. It's the fruit and the gifts of God's spirit and his gracious patience in our lives that actually enable us Not only to tame our tongues, but to tame our lives and to bring ourselves in submission into his will, his word and his work and actually speak his words of righteous blessing. Become the people who speak blessing to God and others so profoundly in every circumstance that people say of us, those are the people with the golden tongues. Those are the people with the hearts of gold. Those are the people of God. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Lord, we pray that you would make this true of us. Not for our glory, but for yours. Not for our sakes, because we've already been saved in you. But so that we could give right witness to you, to a world in need around us. So many who are under the curse. So many who give in to curse. And Lord, we desire that they should be blessed just as we have been blessed. And Father, for any among us who in this time of prayer recognize that they've been cursing you or they've been turning from you or they've been cursing others in a way that displeases you, and maybe that's just about all of us, at some point or another, surely, Lord, I ask that you would enter into that place in our heart or anywhere in our being that we've given yield to cursing literally curse words and profanity that are beneath who we are in you. Also, the curses of emotion and feeling and hatred and ambition that's selfish in nature, greed, critiquing one another in a merciless, graceless way or even critiquing ourselves. Lord, there are people right now in this prayer who you're going to touch them with the recognition that the thoughts you hear from their heart and the words you hear in their minds are constantly tearing themselves down all day long. You're ugly. You're fat. You're stupid. Why are you always saying the wrong thing? Why are you always doing the wrong thing? You're never going to get over that. You're never going to achieve that. And it's their own words that are tormenting them, Lord, Bring repentance into that heart. Bring revelation into that heart to recognize, I don't have to say that about myself. I don't want to say that about myself. But for some, the reality is, I can't stop. It's become a habit. It's become a trap, a prison. Lord, bring deliverance right now from the reality of what that prison is, a trap of hell, a snare of the enemy that you do not desire and that you have overcome. And speak your word of life to those right now, Lord. Let them hear in your voice, in their head, in their heart. You are loved. You are accepted. I approve of who you are and who I made you to be. And where there are issues in you and there are issues in you, The result of that is my work in you will bring you blessing. In other words, stop tearing yourself apart and let me make you whole. Let me help you. I won't hurt you. Let me heal you. I won't kill you. I'll restore you. I'll redeem you. If you're willing to believe that right now, Then receive it. If you're one who's living under the burden of words that were said to you by a father, a mother, an uncle, a teacher, a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, maybe even a child or a a worker, employer, whoever. If there's some voice or set of voices in your life that have constantly spoken the word of curse over you to such a point that you realize, or you may not realize, but the Lord is showing you now that you've become a curse. You've become one who curses others in that way, too. Or you've become one who's afraid to bless or even open your mouth because you're so under the weight of those things. Let the Lord roll that weight off of you right now like a stone being rolled back from a tomb. Let you be brought forth from that place of death into the light of life, into the light of healing, into the light of love, that you are set free from that, that your mother, your father, your uncle, your aunt, Whoever that voice of negativity and cursing in your life was, they don't name you. God knows you. God named you. He said, I've called you by name. You are mine. You'll go through the fire, but you won't be burned because I'll be with you. A flood of waters won't drown you. Many waters cannot quench love. Love is stronger than death. Blessing is stronger than cursing. And Jesus Christ says to you right now, I loved you so much I died for you and rose again to hold you in my hand, to put you in my heart, to heal you. I want to call people forward who want prayer today for whatever reason, You desire the blessing of God. You desire release from cursing. You desire the patient power to tame your tongue and to speak the words of God. Come forward and receive prayer. Come forward and let elders lay hands on you. But it's the Lord who will transform you. You at home, reach out your hand to the screen and pray for those here. Reach out and put your hand on the screen. Reach up your hands to the heavens and ask the Lord to touch you. There's somebody there with you who would pray with you and for you, ask them to do that. Turn to the people around you and say, would you like me to pray for you? We've taken some extra time today, but really the Lord has given us extra time today to receive from his blessing. Let's give thanks to the Lord. When we clap our hands that way, what we are saying is thank you, Lord. Thank you that you speak your word over us. Thank you that you cancel the curse Thank you that you bring the blessing. Thank you that you, Lord of life, Lord of blessing, are greater than death and cursing. And so to you be the glory now and forevermore. And so in that glory, I'm tongue-tied at the end of a tongue sermon. What can I say? I invite you to go forward with confidence. It may be times that you speak the speech trippingly on the tongue, just like I have, but know this. It's not the beauty of your words, but the beauty of the Lord within you that brings life through you. So speak the words of life this week and expect the trials and tests that will put your patience to the test and will put your tongue to the test. Let the Lord tame your tongue. Let the Lord fill your heart. Let the Lord speak through you, spirit, mind, and body. And in your mouth will be the words of life. Go and share them in his mighty name. Amen.